Have, uh, have you ever had one of those rather unique experiences of misplacing one of your children at some, yes? You'd like to give a testimony, Josh? Yes, yes. That's what you get for having four. Easier to keep up with when you got fewer of them. I'm not, I'm not talking about when they're like in the car seat or something like that. They're relatively easy to keep up with at that point. I'm I'm talking about when they get older. As they get older, maybe, maybe you've gone to the mall and suddenly you look around and you notice that one of your, one of your children is gone. Where'd they go? Well, I don't know. And then begins the frantic search to find them, right? Maybe it's at a sporting event of, of some, uh, some nature. Maybe it's an amusement park like Disney World or something like that where you've lost one of your children, Josh. Um, Maybe, maybe you've gone off and left them at church before. Ever happened? Probably to more than one of us. It, it happened when I was growing up. For some reason, it, it seemed to always happen when my mom would take me to Kmart. Remember those when they were around? We would go to Kmart, and I, I would often joke, only those of you who were around and remember Kmart would remember this. It's a wonder that my first words were not, uh, hello, Kmart shoppers. Got a blue light special for you going on down in... Uh, homewares. It would often be the case. We would be at Kmart doing something, going about looking for things, and, and I just wander off. Nothing to worry about. And, you know, we often think that, think that the day we live in today is worse than it was then. I don't know if that's the case or not, or if we just hear more about it today. But I would wander away from mom, and I don't know if she ever really got frantic looking for me or was glad to have some peace and quiet. I'm not sure, because I know it was always at my initiative that we would be regrouped together. And usually what it would entail is I would go to customer service and say, hey, I've lost my mom. Would you mind to page her and let her know she needs to come get me? She hated when that announcement came over. Attention, if there is a Mrs. Jenkins in the building, would you please come and get your son? And she would always come up, and I knew I was in trouble because I'd gotten away from her, and then I'd embarrassed her in the store because I had gotten uh, away from her. What's it like when you lose your child like that? Do you, do you remember those encounters when, when, when your heart would seem to stop? It was anxiety-producing. It was fear-invoking, mind-racing experience. What is going on here as you would search around all over the place to seek to find your child? Well, we have an experience like that, believe it or not, in the life of Jesus this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you'll open them to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2, this is exactly what happens to Jesus. And it's interesting in, in this experience in the life of Jesus where we focus on him getting separated from his parents, there is so much within this passage of Scripture that I find myself wanting to bring out that, that time's just not going to allow us to, to jump into everything like I would like to. But we'll do our best to uncover what the Spirit of God has for us in this passage this morning. Luke chapter 2, look with me in verse 39, and let's just go ahead and read down to verse 52. And when they had performed, that is when Mary and Joseph had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, 
they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now remember what has gone on before everything that the law commanded that we read about here. Mary and Joseph had brought Jesus to the temple uh, on his eighth day of life for circumcision, for the offerings that were to be given because of the life that God has granted to them. And all of that was done, and so they traveled back to Nazareth, this little scrawny town in Galilee that if you were ever to look for a Savior or a Redeemer, Nazareth would have been the last place you looked for. We read in verse 40, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It's interesting that this is the only story we have of Jesus between his infancy and the beginning of his ministry as an adult around the age of 30 or so years. So so from, from the time that he's very young to the time that he's an adult, the only record of his life that we find is this account in the Gospel of Luke. I'm so thankful that Luke, spending time here in this region at some point, was able to get to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and ask ask her the question, I'm sure, what was it like with Jesus as he was growing up? And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she began to share this story. Well, Luke, let me tell you, I remember one account in particular. Of course she remembered it because we're told that she treasured all of these things up. All of these things related to her birth, the announcement of the angel, the the visit by the shepherds, and, and here we have now treasuring these things up in her heart, thinking, what does all of this mean? What does all of this bode for me and for my son? We read the encounter here, and of course the question comes automatically. I'm sure that parents, many of you are probably already asking it, did Jesus do something wrong here? This, this sounds like an incident uh, of rebellion. It looks like a, an incident of disobedience. Is that what it is? And on the one hand, of course, we say, no, we know the truth of Scripture that Jesus never sinned. And so obviously, this could not be wrongdoing on his part. But on the other hand, we come along and say, hmm, but you know, this really looks to me uh, to, in, in, in some circumstance like this to be less than the perfect child. So did Jesus do something wrong? 
Well, Luke gives us some clues. He bookends the story in a way that points us out to understand that Jesus has done nothing wrong. Look, look at verse 40 again. We read, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then we come down to verse 52, a very similar statement. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, when the biblical authors want to tip you off that they're about to bring some criticism into the story, they usually give you hints to it. For example, in the Old Testament, we have the story of David. You can read about this in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, we read that, uh, that at the time when kings go to war, David remained in Jerusalem. And then we read, and he arose early one afternoon. Now the author has just tipped us off to something's not right. Because what is normally the case? Normally the case is that this is the age when kings go off to war. But David didn't go. So something's askew, something's off. And then we read that David isn't where he is supposed to be, and David is getting up late. He arose early one afternoon. Well, in my book, that's not really early. That's kind of late, actually. But we have an understanding that David is not where he's supposed to be, and he's not doing what he is supposed to be doing. And so we have a hint that something is wrong. There's no hint of anything like that in this passage at all. It begins with and ends with God's commendation on the maturing, process taking place in the life of Jesus. So we understand that this is not an incident of Jesus sinning in some way. So what does the story teach us? What do we learn about Jesus in this and what do we do with it in our lives? Well notice with me first of all the activity of Jesus. It, it takes up the bulk of the story actually. It's the story of Mary and Joseph going annually to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem and of them returning and finding that Jesus is not with them. It begins with that. Now, when his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. Now, can I give just a passing word here? This is an aside uh, this, is, uh, this is not the, the majority of the text here, obviously. But I want to make this point to us as parents. Though we are not called by God's Word to go to the, the, the temple or observe feast days, we are, as God's people, called to gather together with one another on the Lord's Day. We Christians have the joy, have the privilege of gathering every Lord's Day to worship the living God together with one another. And I just, parents, I want to pass along to all of us that there is not anything that is much more powerful than a family in worship of God together with one another. Maybe that, that young people are bored to tears at what's going on around them within the hour of a service. But somewhere in the back of their mind, I can't help but think that, that going through that is, you know, mom and dad, well, they're pretty smart. They're pretty busy. They've got a lot of things to do. But every Sunday, they stop everything and they worship God. God must be pretty important to them. He must be more important than anything else to them. And if that was the only thing, that our children, though we, we think them bored to tears in a service like this, if that was the only thing that they got out of it, that would be a pretty important lesson to learn. 
Parents, listen, we can learn something from the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph in the priorities that we establish in the worship of the living God. We can teach a big lesson to our children that God is more important than anything else in life. We read here that Jesus, when he was 12 years old, went with them. It's understandable that this would happen. It was typical in Jewish teaching. A 13-year-old boy would become officially a son of the commandment, a full member of the synagogue. It's, it's celebrated today through the, the Jewish rite of bar mitzvah, a celebration of a boy coming of age, becoming a man, becoming a, a, a student, a member of the synagogue. And it was customary that fathers would oftentimes take their sons to the Passover celebration a year or two before their 13th year so that they could see what's going on. They could understand what's taking place. And so Jesus goes with them to the Passover. They celebrate the Passover together. The feast is ended, we're told in verse 43, and they begin to make their way back to Nazareth. There would be a, a huge contingency of people, a large gathering of people, and they would leave from Jerusalem together in a large group, and then you would see some of them kind of splinter off and go in different directions towards their homes and towards their places. And such would be the case. And so... We have this group of people going along. It would often be the case that the, the women and small children would gather together, a great time of fellowship that they would have. And it would be the case as well that, that the men would be with the older children, especially the sons in the group. They would be traveling along, and Jesus is right on the edge of this age. And so Mary is walking, no doubt, and looking around, and, and I'll see Jesus that he's with his father, of course, because he's right at that age where he could be. And so he's walking with his father, and he's, he's keeping up with them and other relatives that are in the group. And, of course, Joseph is looking around, and I don't see Jesus. I bet he's up with his mom and the rest of the kids. And we'll, we'll gather up together when we break off to go to Nazareth. And then they get to the end of a day's journey. Then Mary and Joseph meet up with one another. It would be almost comical to hear the conversation that would take place as they looked at one another and looked around for Jesus. And then they say to one another, hey, where's Jesus? Almost in, in unison, hey, where's Jesus? Well, what do you mean, where's Jesus? I thought Jesus was with you. Well, I thought he was with you. How did he get separated from us? Where is he? And, of course, they've gone a day's journey. It's late at night. There's nothing that they can do. It's not safe for them to travel back. It's not safe for them to go back at this time. And so they realize we'll have to go back first thing in the morning. And so they're there, I'm sure, not sleeping a wink. The first hint of sunrise, they get back up, make their trek back down the path that they've just been upon another day's journey they arrive at Jerusalem it's now dark again we can't find him in these darkened streets like this and so another sleepless night for Mary and Joseph and then the next day they get up and they find him in the temple that's why we're told here that after three days they found him in the temple and so here they are with Jesus for those of you who have at some point lost your children and after a heart-stopping time like this, you come along, and, and what's the first thing you say to them? Where have you been? What are you doing? Well, that's kind of what Mary did as well. Son, why, why have you treated us like this? Didn't you know that your father and I have been searching for you in great distress? We've been worried sick, Jesus. 
There are a number of replies that our children can give back to us when we ask that question after finding them. Pretty ingenious at times even, but none of us has ever heard anything to match the response of this 12-year-old boy here in Luke's Gospel. He looks at Mary and he says in verse 49, Why were you looking for me? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? More, more accurately, didn't you know that I had to be occupied with my father's business? Didn't you know I was doing exactly what it was that my father wanted me to do? In other words, didn't you know that this is what I'm supposed to be doing? I'm supposed to be doing this very thing. And all of this unfolds in a question and answer time between Jesus and the religious leaders. It must have been a fascinating time for Jesus. It must have been so exciting for him. You have pilgrims from all over the region. You have teachers from synagogues all over the region that would come in. When they would gather together, you would have the teachers there and, and students who would come to learn, and the students would ask questions of the teacher. And then the teacher would reply with information, and then the student would be interrogated after that to see how much of the answer had been assimilated into their life, how much of it they really understood. And so here you have Jesus student of the Word of God, surrounding himself with students of the Word of God. And can I make another aside here for us this morning? Jesus, the Word of God incarnate, wanted to study the Word of God with people who knew the Word of God. Don't you think that you and I should want to study the Word of God as well? If Jesus, the Word of God in the flesh, desired to know the Word of God. How much more should we have as our desire to know the Word of God? We read that the teachers were amazed that, that this young, this 12-year-old boy was able to grasp things so quickly and articulate them so effectively. We look at this and we think, oh, well, of course, I mean, he's God in the flesh. Of course he understood this. Of course he knows what's going on here. And I've done the same thing so often. I've thought of the extraordinary nature of Jesus Christ in relationship to this encounter when he was 12 years old, that somehow, in some way, it began to dawn upon him that he is Messiah. When did that happen? Surely, surely we don't think that Jesus came out of the womb with an understanding that he was the Savior and the Redeemer of mankind. At some point, this dawned upon him. So often we make the mistake of making Jesus out to be so much God that we forget that he is man. Oftentimes we do the reverse and we make him out so much to be man that we forget that he is God. I've missed the fact oftentimes that sandwiched between these two summary statements uh, about Jesus is this encounter in the temple where the people are astounded at what he knows. The summary statements we find in verse 40, the child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom. The favor of God was upon him. And then at the other end, in verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 
That gives us the activity of Jesus. And this leads us to understand the identity of Jesus as well within these very verses. We are told that He grew as a full human being, as man. God in the flesh, yes, but flesh nonetheless, Jesus grew. As every child, He grew. In fact, the very first heresy that coursed through the church had to do with the identity, the person, the nature of Christ. It wasn't a denial of His deity. It was a denial of His humanity. They said that flesh had to be bad and therefore Jesus could not have had a, a, a fleshly body. It was just a phantom appearing. And so much of the New Testament, especially the writings of John, go to great lengths to contradict that teaching and say, no, Jesus was in the flesh. God dwelling among us in flesh and bone just like every other person who ever lived with one dynamic exception. And that was that he had never sinned. John is the gospel writer who tells us that when Jesus was dying on the cross to be certain that he was already dead, a soldier jabbed a spear into his side. And out of that, that wound, blood and water flowed upon them. That doesn't happen from a phantom. You have a real human being here. Understand the doctrine of the incarnation that we talk about so much at Christmas and that we have encountered again here in Luke's Gospel that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, became incarnate. He took on flesh. God in the flesh. But Jesus' development was as any other person's would have been. He had a real physical body. He grew incrementally physically. He didn't come out of the womb and one day an 18-inch little bundle of joy and the next day 5'10 Jewish carpenter. No, he grew as every other child would grow. He had a real soul. He had a real mind. Don't think that Jesus came out of the womb and just understood immediately that this is green. No, uh, no, of course his mother would have taught him. Here's the grass. The grass is green. Look at the sky. The sky is blue. The clouds are white. He learned. He learned Scripture. He learned Scripture so that when he got to the point of temptation in the wilderness, when the devil came with every temptation that he had, Jesus countered him with an understanding of the Word of God. And with every temptation, he brought the Word of God back against him. Jesus had real emotions. That's why when he arrives in Jerusalem before his trial and crucifixion, we read that he stopped and he wept over Jerusalem in the state of their lostness. That's why Lazarus, when he was dead and in the tomb, Jesus stands around the tomb with the others and he weeps there at the agony that death has brought. He grew. He learned. What else can you make of the very clear teaching of Scripture? The child grew and became strong. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He grew and as he was outside, he would see the lilies growing out. As he got to his ministry, he would remind the people around him, consider the lilies of the field. They don't spin, they don't toil, and yet look at how beautifully they're clothed. Understand God can take care of you too. 
Jesus would observe the birds flying in the air. He would see them land and and pick up pieces for their nest, pick up pieces of food to eat. And then in his ministry, he would come along and he'd say, "Look look at the birds of the air. They've got nothing. And yet the Lord provides for them what they need. The Lord will provide for you. He looks to the time of the harvest and he sees the workers going out into the field to gather the harvest. And in his ministry, he comes along and he says, the harvest spiritually is ready. It's ready, but we need workers to go. Or Perhaps he sees the shepherds out in the fields. and He sees how they tenderly care for their sheep and how they provide and how they, they lead those sheep to where they need to be and provide comfort for them. And so he says to them, I am the good shepherd. Good shepherd is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. That's what I do. Jesus learned. And I know we sit back and we look at this and we say, does this really matter? Does it matter that Jesus was in the flesh? Does it matter that Jesus had humanity? Does it matter that Jesus was like us? Yes, it matters greatly. Because without a real human Christ, there is no atonement for our sins. It is is we who have sinned against God, and as a result of that, the wages of sin is death. And so all of us deserve death. So man has to pay the penalty for sin, but man is incapable of paying the penalty for sin. God is not required to pay the penalty for sin. There's no sin within Him, but He is the only one who is capable of paying for sin. And so the answer to our problem is God in the flesh. So Luke stresses for us, reminding us that Jesus was flesh and bone just like you and me. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be thirsty. He knew what it was like to be tired. He knew. And friends, there's such great comfort in that. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, who when he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us because he lived in this flesh suit just like you and I do. He knows what pain is. So that when you get to the point that you say, I don't know that anybody really understands, understand that Jesus does understand because He's been there. When you get to the point that you say, I don't don't think anybody really understands the longing of my soul, understand Jesus does because He's been there. Say, I don't know that there's a single person to whom I can go. You can go to Him because He understands. He's been there. That's the identity of Jesus. In the identity of Jesus, we discover the business of Jesus. Again in verse 49, he said to them, why why were you looking for me? It's not a term of disrespect in the least. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? There's such a contrast here. Verse 48 When Mary says, Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress, 
verse 49, Jesus said, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? In other words, Mary, let's not forget who my father really is. I have a deeper, I have a greater, I have a stronger allegiance than just to my physical family. I know you make a statement like that today and it, it sounds almost blasphemous to say it. It gives an indication of how quickly we can very nearly make idols of our own families. We have an allegiance that is greater than our earthly family. It's an allegiance to God. We have an allegiance greater than our earthly possessions. It's an allegiance to God. We have an allegiance that is greater than anything in this world. It's an allegiance to God. And here in verse 49, we have the very first words of Jesus recorded in Scripture. The very first thing he says that's recorded for us in Scripture. What does he say? Don't you know? that I must be in my father's house? More accurately, don't you know, I must be involved in my father's business? It's also the very first time in Scripture that an individual has claimed God as his personal father. Or you can read in the Old Testament where God is referred to as father, but it's on a national sense, related to the nation of Israel. First time in Scripture that an individual claims God as his personal father. Father. And in fact, it is the only title that Jesus gives to the Father except in one instance. Only one time does Jesus ever call him anything other than Father. And that's when he is dying on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Always and forever, uh, Jesus refers to him as Father, except in that moment when the weight of your sin and my sin was bearing upon him and the face of God, the wrath of God was poured out. The wrath that we deserve, that Jesus took. Here we have this one, God in the flesh. Don't you know that I had to be the activity of my father's business. What was the business of the father? It can be summed up in one word. The business of the father is salvation. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus was about the business of the Father. What was the business of the Father? Saving sinners. That's what Jesus is all about. And it's this that allows me to say to you, every human being without exception is invited to come to Christ and trust Him as Savior. Because He commands all men everywhere to repent. He offers a universal invitation. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Here we have the first recorded words of Jesus in Scripture, doing the Father's business. You know what one of the last recorded words of Jesus is? It is finished. Isn't that amazing? 
All of his life bookended with the business of the Father in redemption and salvation. I I have to be about my Father's business. And then it's finished. It's done. The work of the Father is completed. And he became one of us. Took on flesh to make it happen. I want to say to you today, who are not believers in Jesus Christ, who who do not follow Jesus Christ, for whom Jesus is not your Lord and Savior. I want to tell you today the invitation is extended to you to come to Him. Come to me, all, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't exclude yourself from that invitation. If today you are without Jesus Christ, then I pray today is the day you will open your heart before Him and you will receive the salvation that He offers. It's why He came. It's His whole mission in life. If it weren't for the fact that you and I needed salvation, Jesus would need not have come. But can I speak to you today, Christian, as well? God took an incarnational ministry. God became one of us that he might redeem us. Does that have implications for us as a church? Of course it does. We must adopt an incarnational ministry as well. It is not the message of the church, come here and find us. The message of the church is as we are going, we proclaim Jesus to them. We become incarnational in the community. We become Jesus to the people around us, pointing them to Jesus, the Redeemer and Savior of mankind. Non-Christian, do you understand today that Jesus came to do the work of the Father? That is to save sinners, to save you? Understand the necessity of salvation today through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be made right with God than through Jesus Christ. Christian, Will we be the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus in the community in which God has placed us? Father, this day we thank you again for your word. So incredibly packed with meaning and significance to be reminded of the lengths to which, Jesus, you have gone that we might be redeemed and saved. And I pray today that that for those who do not know Jesus, for those who have never confessed faith in Jesus, for those who have never trusted and believed in Him, I pray today, please, please, that you would open hearts and eyes. That they would come to the Savior and receive forgiveness before it's too late. I pray for us as a church. Jesus, you prayed for your disciples that that we wouldn't be taken out of this world, but that we would be kept safe from the evil one. And you pray that even as the Father sent you, you are sending us. And so I pray, would you strengthen us for the sending? 
in our lives, the people who need Jesus. Use us as you see fit that sinners might come to know the Savior and that glory might be given to God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.